Well, I'd like to pray with you for a minute before we look into God's word. And uh, you know, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor next week. Uh, about 80-some of our people are out at the camp. And uh, so if you could sit more towards the front and maybe a little more towards the middle, that would be appreciated next week. This is, this is the first time we've gone from two services back to one. And so we're learning. And so we're going to put up some more chairs at the back and things like that. But that, I would appreciate it if you would help me with that next week. Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father, how grateful we are for these biblical truths that we've been singing. The fact that you love us, that you never let go of us, that you uh, leave the 99 to go and find the one because of the value inherent in human beings created in the image of God. Human beings for whom Jesus died and gave his life. We thank you that, as it talks about in the Psalms, there's this image of us being under the shelter of your wings that we just sang about, that it's a protected place. It's a place of provision. It's a place of, a place of warmth. We thank you that these images that we've been singing and reading about just reflect a kind father. And as we look into your word now, would you speak to us just as only you can? Speak truth, speak personally, first to me, but to each one here. And we pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Some time ago, I saw this movie that actually was shot in 1983, and it was nominated for, I believe, seven Academy Awards. And it's called The Right Stuff. And it's the story of the original seven U.S. astronauts that were in the Mercury program, their first manned space travel from the United States. And it's a very interesting movie. It's, like I said, it's called The Right Stuff. The subtitle of the movie is How the Future Began. How the Future Began. And I was intrigued by the rigors that these individuals went through in order to be qualified astronauts and, and eventually to become heroes. If you've seen this show, they go through just a battery of extreme psychological and physical and emotional testings. In, in some cases, just very bizarre tests that they had to navigate. The dangers these guys endured were extensive. Some of them died in the process. Uh, many of them were injured. John Glenn, perhaps one of the more famous of the seven astronauts, would often say this, it's hard to be confident when you know that the missile that you're sitting on has been built by the lowest bidder. These guys were guys of incredible, courageous attitudes, brave individuals. They made personal sacrifice upon personal sacrifice, all to show that they had the right stuff. I was thinking about that as it relates to fatherhood. And we're going to look at a story about a father in Scripture who showed the right stuff at tremendous cost. But before we look at the story, the well-known story of the prodigal son, I need to take a couple of minutes to set the background so that we properly understand this because we're not going to look at the primary ideas of this passage. We're going to look at more of the stuff that's running in the subroutine this morning. 
And so to properly understand Luke chapter 15, and if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. You need to read verses 1 and 2 to understand the three stories that are found in Luke chapter 15. They are the backdrop and the reason for the three stories that Jesus told. Luke chapter 15, Luke is the third book in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus is out teaching and speaking and interacting with people. And it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious elite, the power brokers of that society. The people that uh, were fully invested in a religious system that saw them as sort of at the peak of power in that society. And they didn't like what they were seeing in Jesus because he was teaching something fundamentally different than what they understood the Old Testament to say. And they felt threatened by him for a number of reasons. And so they're watching him to see if he slips up in their mind in any way. And so it says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, which was something they would never do. So Jesus is aware of their muttering, and this is the basis of these three stories in Luke chapter 15. All three stories are primarily addressed at answering this. How does God the Father feel towards people who are outside the family of God? How does God the Father feel towards people who are outside of the family of God? And so Jesus tells three stories to address that issue, to address that question. The story of the lost sheep, which we sang about this morning, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son. And all three stories have some common themes running through them. One of them is, is that something of incredible value has been lost. And from that we understand, as you look at the stories, that lost people matter to God. You hear me say this often, not original with me, Bill Heibel said that originally, lost people matter to God. The second thing that you see running through all three of these stories is that these lost people weren't an all-out search. In other words, we serve until we drop in pursuit of lost people because they matter to God. These are people, whoever they are, wherever they are in this world, they matter to God. There's eight times, if you read that chapter, that the lostness of man is talked about in that chapter. And then thirdly, the third big idea that runs all through it is that there's a cosmic celebration in heaven whenever one repent, one sinner repents of their sin. We see this at least two times in the passage. There's a cosmic celebration where the angels rejoice when someone understands their lostness before holy God and that Jesus came to provide a way to have relationship with holy God. And when they get that and when they receive the grace that, again, we were singing about this morning, the grace that is offered, and they bow the knee, either literally or figuratively, and they repent of their sin. There's a cosmic celebration that goes on in heaven. These are the big ideas of this passage. We have to understand these things to fully appreciate it. And we're going to be looking at the third of the three stories today. And there's a basic subroutine working in there. And we're going to focus on how a father 
treats his children. So if you have your Bible, again, follow with me as we read the story of the prodigal son, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued. This is story number three. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, they replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who squandered your property with with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So the young son feels cramped in his environment, goes to dad and says, I want my share of what's coming to me. Now, for reasons, to be honest with you, I don't totally understand. The dad says, okay, here is your portion of the inheritance. And typically in that culture, as the younger son, he would have gotten a third of the estate. The oldest son would get two-thirds. And this was very unusual in this culture for him, for the father to give his inheritance early because and basically it was unheard of because you were expected in that culture to care from yourself from cradle to grave. They had no social safety net like we would have in our culture now. And so as a parent, you were expected to provide for yourself and your children were expected to care for you as you got more elderly. So this was very unusual for this to happen. And so the kid comes and says, I want my share and for reasons I don't get, the father gives his share to him. 
Well, the son is flush with cash, and he wants to do his own thing, and it won't be pretty. Let me ask the dads that are here, or those that might be dads, or those that interact with kids on some level. If that day comes, and I think this is a day that no father would ever look forward to, if that day comes when one of your kids starts to act way out of bounds for whatever reason, how do you react? What do you do? How do you handle it? When this dad sees this, he understands fundamentally it's time for him to step up and to exhibit the right stuff. And the right stuff very clearly and very quickly is illustrated with words, again, not original with me, but the concept is biblical of tough love. Based on what I see in this passage later, I think Dad said something like this to him. Now, again, I'm using my imagination, but I'm imagining it was something like this. I love you, son. I love you with all my heart. I care for you. I so want you to be part of our household. I want you to be part of the family here. But having said all that, I just can't stand by and watch you engage in behavior that's not only wrong, but it's, it's sinful in an ongoing habitual manner. It's self-destructive. It hurts you. It hurts others. It will scar you for life. It will bring shame on you. It will bring shame on this family. And it will bring shame on God. And I cannot allow this while you're under my roof and my influence. And I want you to just try to imagine with me how incredibly hard, and some of you know this personally, how incredibly hard that would be to do. These are things that only can be done by a parent that loves their children deeply. So much so that you cannot stand by and allow this self-destructive stuff to go on. This is not the kind of dad who's just waiting for Junior to turn 18 so he can push him out the door. I can hardly wait till the kid grows up so I don't have to deal with this anymore. This is not the kind of dad in this passage that we see. But at the same time, he is a dad who says, I cannot compromise what is right just to keep Junior around temporarily. Now, until a person has to do something like that, I don't think we can imagine how difficult that would be. So Junior, the young son, says, no problem, I'm out of here. And he takes his roll of cash, and he leaves. And so often as fathers, we're tempted to say, I'll give in if only he'll stay. I'll give in to just have a, a temporary peace in the house. And understand that on some issues in life, it, it's totally appropriate to compromise. Sometimes as men, we get stuck in our ways and, and we, 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 we kind of focus on the power that we think we have and we think it has to be my way. And there's some issues in life it's totally appropriate to compromise on. There's, there's some issues in life where we have to say, 
I was wrong on this. I was hasty in my judgment, and I need to have the courage to admit where I've overstepped. But that's not the case here. This is a matter of principle. And dad can see the end of where this is going to be, what this is going to come to conclusion. And he understands, if I really love my son, I have to stand firm here, as hard as that is to do. The right stuff for fathers means sometimes you have to make the tough decision, not because you don't love your kid, but because you do. Let me say that again. The right stuff for dads is sometimes you have to make the tough, hard call, not because you don't love them, but because you do. Kids, if you're here today, understand something about your dad. They're not always going to be right. But normally, and I understand there's notable exceptions to this, but normally they have your best interests in mind. Normally they have life experience. Normally, and, and hopefully in your life, you've been blessed with a dad that knows Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And they're doing their best. They're praying and they're saying, God, how, how can I raise these children this great privilege and responsibility you've given to me to raise these kids? How can I raise them well? Children, I invite you to listen to them, to honor them. This is a very biblical thing to do. And you will probably regret it if you don't. Notice that this is not some minor issue that they're parting company over. Sometimes across, I come across people that, you know, want to blow the family up over something that's relatively minor. This isn't taking place because Junior wouldn't take out the garbage, okay? There's other ways to deal with that. This isn't happening because son number two wouldn't finish his pee. Again, there's other ways to deal with that. And so let's be careful, Dad, what we decide to go to the wall for. This is a matter where you've got to get down on your knees and say, God, how big a deal is this? I'm not totally sure. Help me to know how, how firm I have to be on this. Is this an appropriate place to compromise, yes or no? It's, it's very clear. So much is clear in Scripture. But if you're not sure, just say, God, would you help me now? And God, the good Father, will help you know how firm and what to take a strong stand on. Because there's some things that we have to do that for. If it's ongoing rebellion or something that's going to destroy the rest of the family, we have to act. Many of you know that years ago, I worked, um, well, I was in graduate school, I worked in social services. And I worked in a young offenders family services facility with deeply troubled young people. And there's a number of things I learned there. Um, let me mention two of them. One of the things I learned there is that it's much easier to stand on principle when it's not your teenager. Um, 
it's not easy in that environment because these were deeply troubled young people that had been hurt horribly in life, many of them. But when it's someone else's child, and in a sense you're just doing your job, it's not easy, but I think it's a little easier than when it's your own kid. And I can remember trying to imagine if I had to take these kind of very fair, it always had to be fair, but firm stances with my kids, man, this is going to be way harder than it is in this particular environment. And I think God helped me to understand that a little bit during that time in my life. The second thing that I learned there, well, there was a number of things, but second thing was is if that young person was deliberately breaking a clear-cut rule, if they were uh, showing defiance, which they always did when they first came into that facility, they tested, and all the other uh, the, of the individuals that were there were watching very carefully. You had to be very firm and very fair. You had to stand your ground. If you didn't, they would eviscerate you in hours. And about 50 people worked in that facility, and I lost track of how many people came and went. Many, many, many people only lasted one shift or not even. Because, for any number of reasons, but sometimes one of the reasons was is they thought loving meant you just let things go. And as soon as you did that, it was not good. The right stuff means at times making some hard decisions because you love them, not because you don't. So dad says, I love you, but no way are you doing that stuff here. So junior grabs his roll of money and bolts to some distant country. The next thing we see this dad doing is he waits for God to do what he cannot do. While the son is gone, the dad aches and longs for him to return. We can see this based on the fact that he's watching the horizon for that day when his kid will come back. I would imagine, and again, this is just my imagination, I would imagine he spent long hours in prayer. Lord, may my son come to the end of himself. In fact, Lord, would you bring whatever it takes into his life or into my life to bring my son to the end of himself where he will own his sin, where he will repent of his sin and return. But while he's praying, this dad realizes, I can't drag him back. Oh, I'd love to drag him back, but I can't. I can't force him to stay. I can't lock him in his room. Because my son is a human being with a will of his own. And so I am going to pray for God to do what I cannot do. And that's to change my son's heart. For the young guy, it's party time. And I don't need to paint you a picture of what that meant, but pretty quickly, the money is gone. And he works, he ends up working in this distant country at what would be for a young Jewish man the most humiliating kind of job in that culture in particular, even to a certain extent to this day, the most humiliating job imaginable for a young Jewish man, working with pigs. Not kosher. And so this is a humiliating uh, 
situation in life. And he has spent and squandered everything he had. He doesn't even have enough food to eat. And he's longing to eat the slop that the pigs are eating out in the fields, but he's not allowed to. And so he's deeply hungry. And he starts to come to the end of himself. And he decides it's time to go home. And he prepares a little speech. I would suggest to you, when you look at that little speech, which we'll look at in a minute, these are things that you don't normally just come up with on your own. I'm going to suggest, and again, my imagination, but I'm going to suggest that he learned these things from his dad. That these things were modeled for him in the home. And this is another thing that a dad does that's exhibiting the right stuff. He teaches and models the right stuff in the home. What does my family see in me? Let's see verses 18 and 19. I will set out, the son says, and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. This son understands what sin really is. Not a lot of people do. He knew that he had sinned, not only against God, but also against his dad. He knew how to repent. He knew how to apologize and own his stuff with no excuses. No trying to transfer the blame to someone else. No minimizing what he had done. And he humbles himself deeply. Just listen to some of the apologies. You know, when someone in the public eye gets caught doing something. Sometimes deeply sincere apologies. But sometimes they're just laden with, uh, you know, this person did this and this was impacting me. And, and it's minimizing their involvement. This son didn't do that. And I would suggest that he learned this kind of stuff from his dad. That it was likely modeled in his father in the home. Let me just say to the children and to the teenagers, to the young adults here, here, if you have a dad who has the courage, and it takes great courage, to apologize like that when they've done something wrong, you are deeply privileged. When you are signing that little Father's Day card today, that might be one of the things you look your dad in the eye and say, I'm honored to be your child because I saw from you how to own my stuff. I saw you humble yourself. Learn from your dad. Watch how he repents. Watch how he owns what he did. No excuses. And you know, guys, let's be honest. That's hard for us, right? We're often proud. We often think we have this, you know this weird message that gets imparted to us by the culture that I'm somehow showing weakness when I admit that I'm wrong. And can I suggest the Bible would teach just the opposite, that a weak person is the one who will not admit they're wrong. That the, purge, the person of great courage is the one who'll say, I blew it, and I have no excuse." Please forgive me. 
And so dads, we teach and we model these things before our children. Well, one day, uh, dad is looking out over the horizon. And in my experience being a city boy, when I've spent time with farmers and ranchers, they have this incredible uh, capacity to see great distances over the landscape. I grew up on the prairie. And, you know, I'll be sitting, I'd be sitting with guys like that, and they're going, hey, do you see that out there? And I'm going, but I don't see it at all. I see the barn here about 100 yards away, but I don't see where you're, you know. And they can see really far, and they've trained their eye to see out into the landscape. And so this dad is, is looking, and I don't think this is an accident, and he sees his son coming. And we don't know how he knew it was his son. Maybe his son had a, you know, most people have a kind of a particular way that they walk. Maybe he could see that uh, this person on the horizon had this particular gait and a style of walking. And he just knew that it was his son. And his heart is filled with compassion for his lost son. And the boy comes up to him and he repents of his sin. He doesn't delay he just says it like it is. And at this point, we see once again a father modeling authentic Christianity, biblical parenting. This is the real stuff. He throws his arms open, says, get the best robe, get the ring, kill the fatted calf. We're going to party because my son that was lost has come home and repented, owned his stuff, and he's come home. And you know, I was thinking about this, and uh, I was really convicted by this. Because I think sometimes in the church, and I think sometimes in my life, we can be suspicious of people after they repent. And we kind of go, oh, that's awesome that they repented, but you better, ooh, better be careful about them. Better not throw the arms open too wide. Because, man, they might botch it, botch it again. And this father isn't like that. He accepts his repentant son wholeheartedly. Everybody knows that what this kid did was wrong. Totally wrong. But rather than pour gas on the fire, this father allows him to repent, and then he extends grace and compassion and acceptance. Now, there's clearly an expectation Based, if you read the whole story, there's an expectation that things are going to be different now, right? But this passage teaches us about being a dad. And it's a parable. And so really, it's representative of characters, right? And the father is God the father. The young son is me and you. And the older son is the Pharisee. But a parable is always based on truth. And usually it's communicating one or two, usually one, but one or two primary truths. And so we see, and we're not going to spend time this morning going into what the older son and that issue there, but we see the heart of God the Father. And we learn for him, from him as earthly fathers how to deal with our kids. It says in verse 24, for this son of mine is dead, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. 
in all three stories. Something of incredible value was lost that warranted an all-out search because lost people matter to God. And when they repented, there was a cosmic celebration that went on. This picture of God is what he's done for each one of us or what he wants to do if we'll receive it. He's waiting for us. He's looking for us to come. And there's a cosmic... If you were to repent today, there will be a party in heaven of celebration. And for me, that day came when I was just about 11 years old. When I bowed the knee and gave my life to Christ. And later in life, I read this and I went, wow, there was a day when there was a party, a celebration, because I bowed the knee. This is the kind of father God the Father invites us to be as daddy. The light's back.